Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. <laughs> Gone with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. So, Christy, why is the song called Four Sticks? Hopefully, you know this. John Bonham was playing with four sticks. There you go. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns, and I'm sorry, but Tammy is not with us today. And if you're a sharp-eared listener to this show, you probably know what that means. We have an interview with an author today. Her name is Christy Hallberg, and the book is titled Searching for Jimmy Page. It's a work of fiction but is rooted strongly in the history and the locations that are associated with Led Zeppelin, specifically Jimmy Page, thus the title. Plus, I found it to just simply be a good book. So for an hour today, Christy Hallberg, author of Searching for Jimmy Page on Rock School. On the phone with me, I've got author Christy Hallberg. Hallberg, which, which one is it? Which is the correct pronunciation? Well, think about it like this. Uh-huh. If you're walking down a hall yeah. and you hit an iceberg, Hallberg. <laughs> again, hit an iceberg again. Wow. Yep. How yep. very Titanic of you. You, Christy, are the author of the book Searching for Jimmy Page. And look, I'm going to give you what is so essentially a backhanded compliment. Just let me get through it before you tell me to drop dead. Okay? Oh, dear. Okay. I, right. don't, I don't really like reading fiction books. And I, I, you are I, not the first person who's interviewed me who said that. So that I, this, I'm not hearing this for the first time. Oh, good, good. Because yeah. I, I, I'm of the opinion my reading has to lead to something. It's got to be part of a mm-hmm. lecture. It's got to be a show, what have you. So when you sent me this book, I mean, I always take the books. And I said to myself, you know, what I'm probably going to do is end up reading two chapters, calling her back and politely thanking her for her submission to the Rock School Radio Show. I got involved in this book, and that's saying something for you. I really enjoyed this. All right. Well, that's terrific. I'm so glad. Now, once again, it's called Searching for Jimmy Page. And what I found interesting about the book was how it discussed how music and a parent's love of music, and we're going to talk about that as well, it it molds and shapes and has an effect on people so mm-hmm. let's let's get into this idea that when you're talking about this it reads dramatically autobiographical and when you mm-hmm. read the coda and by the way coda instead of epilogue oh i get it jimmy page <laughs> right so yes when you read it you seem to describe a woman who's pictured in the back of the book is this is this autobiographical? There are elements of it that are. I think every novelist's first novel is 
highly or at least in part autobiographical it's it's still fiction the overriding story is fiction but yeah there are a lot of autobiographical elements in it i did notice also that you used news stories i.e jimmy page with a young woman and she happened to be pregnant your timeline equals actual events is yes. that when you started off, did you put this at a date in a year just so everything would line up through it? Well, yes and no. Luna, the main character, is the same age I am. So we both graduated high school in 1988, and that was an important year for me. I was such a big Led Zeppelin fan from the time I was 15. And, of course, they broke up before I was ever able to get into them. They broke up in 1980 when I was, what, 10 or 11. And so I knew that Jimmy's first solo album, Outrider, was coming out in 1988. And I wanted that to play a role in this story. So it's no accident that it was set then. In the, in the year that Outrider came out. Did you like the Outrider right. album? I did. I mean, obviously, I, I, I didn't like it as much as Led Zeppelin's work. Yeah. But I was so excited that he was putting out something because it had been a while. I mean, he'd done a couple albums with The Firm, and he'd done the soundtrack to Death Wish 2, but he really hadn't done a whole lot in in the 80s. And so I was really excited about it and did like it, yeah. Yeah, the first thing out of my brain was that why is she using the Outrider album when The Firm, it, that's, that's where the top 10 hit came from. People would yeah. be able to say radioactive. That's why I thought it's sure. even more autobiographical because... To like an album that really doesn't have any hits and you've got to be a massive fan to buy it, that sounds like that was in your record collection. And it, well, it, yeah, yeah go ahead. not only is it in my record collection, it's, it's actually the, the album is framed and on the wall in my study at home. So <laughs> it's, yeah, so I still have it. Now, wait, you, you have a study. Wow. My, yes, well, sounds... I teach online. So oh, you I, do. I have to okay. Have a at home. Yeah. See, I, you and I are both professors. Where are you, a mm -hmm. smarty smart? East Carolina University. Now, I live on the the opposite side of the state. Mm -hmm. I live near Asheville, but I've been teaching online since well before the pandemic. I think I started doing that full time around 2012. <laughs> that happened to Luna, once again, the main character, which I think is you, you're just not telling me about it. <laughs> she... No, she's not. Really, she's not. She is so much cooler than I am. Oh. And so much, she is so much smarter than I am and more talented than I am. She's all the things I wish I were, except I, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself an outcast, and she sort of is. Well, but I promise come on. you, I could never rock she, a mohawk the way she, she does. That's true, but she also was the girl who who wanted to try this to be in with the crowd, wanted to have sex to be, you know, normal, oh, yeah, and yeah. all of that. She, I mean, where was she when I needed a prom date? I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, well, damn. Well, backing up to the question I was trying to get to. 
I get it that she was a punk fan, thus the Mohawk. However, this blurry picture of her mother with a guy, we think, is this person. It molded this person's how do I how do I say this? Uh, it molded her like of music or interested in music in at least one kind of music. And I remember reading about that and thinking, my father's enjoyment of music that I I wouldn't listen to at the time because I wasn't cool enough for it. Uh, Broadway plays and all that. You see, now I adore it. And I thought that was a neat thing to talk about. And I think a rock school show could be made out of it. The idea that the parents that raise you, you either accept their music and love it, or you completely reject it and become your yeah. own person. What do you think about that? Oh, I think that's definitely true. I think most people go in one direction or, or the other. Um, and in Luna's case, she she has such an unreliable memory because her mother died when she was nine and the family systematically just kind of erased her from their lives so that they could they could survive her death and so there's a lot about claudia which is luna's mother that she has sort of invented and i think she sort of um hero worships her kind of like she does jimmy page mm -hmm. so i'm not i'm not sure how reliable her memory is um but yeah i mean going back to what you're saying my mother didn't have strong taste in music i got my taste largely from my siblings who were much older than i so i, I didn't have anything to reject in terms of my parents musical proclivities my, my father my parents divorced when i was seven and I, I wasn't exposed all that much to his musical interest. I mean, I knew that he liked classical music. I knew that he liked big band. But I, I wasn't around that enough to really associate it with him. So I didn't feel a need to reject or embrace. But it was really my siblings whose musical taste really shaped mine. When you talked about the effect that Jimmy Page had. And by the way, I, I, the hardest part of this interview is to talk about the book, talk about music, and not give away the yeah. book. Because I'll be honest with you, the ending was not what I was expecting, which is a, a good literary trope to have. All I mean, right. you lead me, if you lead me down the path and exactly what I think is going to happen happens, well, thanks for wasting my day. <laughs> the, the thing is that you talk about this girl who takes mm -hmm. on this human being, this larger than life character. And, you know, Fleetwood Mac made the statement, players only love you when they're playing. Yep. I've, I've never met, I've met next to none of my musical heroes. Some of them have died. Mm -hmm. I'm that old. Why do we internalize these human beings? They're not gods, but for some reason we internalize them. Well, I think for people like Claudia and Luna, and I guess like me too, music is such a part of your, your life soundtrack. You know, for people who, who worship the music, who for some reason or another just take it on as as a character trait or something that informs their life in some way. And not everybody is this way, but the people who really gravitate towards that or any art form really, then you tend to make heroes out of the people who create it because it is such a sacred thing. 
and I play around a little bit with that in the book, the idea of the, the music and, and the artists who make it as, as being this kind of combination of the profane and the sacred. And, and I, that's the closest that I can come to an explanation for why we do that. It's just the art form means so much to you that you've elevated it. And, and therefore, the people who make it are elevated. A lot of death happens in this book. Yeah. I yeah. mean, a lot of people drop off. None of them are gasp. <laughs> none of them are gaspful. It's they're they're older. They're to die. the The mother was a bit much, but we don't go through that death. Right. And Ecclesiastes six ten, from the Bible, obviously, yeah. keeps coming up. Do you know it off the top of your head? I have it written here. That which hath been is named already. I'll say it like the grandfather would say it. Okay. Well, that's what the great-grandfather uh, recites from the Bible right before he dies, and that takes place at the very beginning of the book. And it kind of sets a lot of of the themes in motion, I think. To me, that Bible verse raises the question or presents the problem. Are we? How much of who we are is already determined before we even get here how, how big of a role does providence play in shaping who we are or in determining who we are and then how much of a responsibility do we have to figure out who we are or to create who we are and that's a lot of what luna is doing so the book is called searching for jimmy page and you're right it is about literally searching for jimmy page but there's a lot of searching going on in the book of of other things as well and personal identity is one of them we need to take our first break and allow the affiliates to run their commercials but we'll be back in a minute to continue talking with christy hallberg author of searching for jimmy page on rock school You have about two or three reoccurring metaphors or what I'd call them, which I mm-hmm. thought was funny because the title is not a metaphor. Somebody is literally searching for Jimmy yeah. Page. One of the things you kept doing was juxtaposing, and I see this in rock and roll all the time. You were juxtaposing this idea of the devil and goodness, God, if yes. you will. And there was a, a famous, well, famous, a, a, a rather predominant section in the book where Page was shown and one person saw him as the devil and the other person said, no, look at the light from mm-hmm. him. Is, is that what music is, especially a band like Led Zeppelin? Are they both? Yeah. yeah, they're rock and roll. You're right. 
is that it, that crystallizes rock and roll to me that that confluence of the sacred and the profane and, and i i think that is also part of led zeppelin and, and particularly jimmy page's mystique and it's one that they've really cultivated too right. so i know exactly what scene you're talking about too yeah when when that happens and it, it's when Claudia and Luna are watching The Song Remains the Same, the movie, the Led Zeppelin concert film at a drive-in. And and there's a, a in an opening sequence, the camera pulls up close to Jimmy Page. He's sitting on a blanket and he turns around and he's got these bubbling, glowing red eyes. And then later on, you just see him as this ethereal figure on stage. And that that juxtaposition is has always been fascinating to me not just with regard to to them and, and him and their music but just in general i'm interested in that kind of ambiguity by the way you wrote about something that a lot of people just think is the greatest thing in the world and i have always thought it was one of the dumbest things in the world <laughs> you you went on for a page and a half about and then somebody handed Paige a violin bow and he played the guitar with it. I got to be honest with you. I've seen that section of the movie and I've seen him do it in other concert films yeah. and such. And I have always found it to be the most boring thing in the world. Get back <laughs> to playing a song. What is so great I, about that? I, I just I think it goes back to that that whole mystique. And he certainly wasn't the first one to do that, but he's probably the first or the most famous rock and roller to do that. But I, again, I think it centers around that kind of mystique that, that has followed that band, that they made that kind of Faustian bargain with the devil, you know, that, that goes back to Dr. Faustus and, and then blues legends like Robert Johnson. There's that, that hint. Well, it's shoot. It's more than just a hint that kind of nudge, nudge, like there's, there's something kind of, evil going on here so that that always is kind of like a subtext in their music and i think that part of that is i mean i guess jimmy would probably say no i'm just interested in, in the sound kind of like playing the theremin but i i think there's um an image that goes with it explain to me like if if you said even to a led zeppelin fan Mm. Name your favorite top 10 Led Zeppelin songs. Look, name your favorite 10 Led Zeppelin songs and make sure you name every song but one on Led Zeppelin 4. I don't think that, <laughs> I still don't think they would name the song Four Sticks. Yeah. Why such an obtuse, obtuse tune? I have always loved that song. I, I think it gets buried on that album because that album is such a monster. But to me, it's, it's such an interesting piece of music, and it's got, it's, it's so rich with imagery. I mean, a lot of their songs are, but that song with the images of rivers running dry, running red, and the pines crying in the night, and the owls crying, and that juggernaut of the guitar, and then that primal beat of Bonzo's drums, and then that primeval well of Robert Plant, and then, and then there's that, those different energies that go on in that song too like in the beginning it's just really hard and, and very masculine with the energy and then it kind of shifts into this more feminine flowing kind of feel that dun 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 so there's a lot going on with that song that has always grabbed me that would be the one that if, if you on a rainy day if I'm feeling sad or something that's that's the one I'm gonna, gonna play 
I was always that way uh, feeling about Led Zeppelin. Yeah, they're a hard rock band. Some say heavy metal. The thing is, half of their songs are acoustic. Right. And half of those songs are these slow, calm, as mm-hmm. you called them, feminine songs. It's, mm-hmm. it's just the hard, fast movers in 7-8 time are the ones that everybody sort of gloms on to. Right. Yeah, I think the people who are primarily interested in heavy metal gravitate towards their harder songs and then think of them as a heavy metal band. I've never thought of them that way. They're so eclectic. There's so much going on with that, with that band that I don't think you can pinpoint them into one genre. Yeah, they don't fit in a box. That's Mm-mm. that's absolutely for sure. So, Christy, why is the song called Four Sticks? Hopefully you know this. John Bonham was playing with four sticks. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> Two sticks in each hand, which is why it sounds so much larger than it actually right. is. Two hits becomes four hits. line down specifically to say it to you and I maybe it was just a throwaway line but you made the statement that I that I never heard her there's been a beautiful piano I've never heard her once play that piano and I have seen that piano in so many people's houses play it push the keys but no it's it's a piece of furniture like the record player used to be a piece of furniture It, it should be doing something but it uh but it isn't. Hey, look, it's 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 searching for Jimmy Page, but Susie right. and the Banshees keep popping up, <laughs> and and at one point she put Susie and the Banshees away. I think that was a metaphor as well. She put the record away. Now it's time to go find Jimmy Page. Do I have that correct? Yeah, yeah. And and the weird thing is, I had never listened to Susie and the Banshees before, <laughs> but it just seemed like the perfect band that Luna would like. So you just did it off the visual? I did. I, and then I started uh, listening. So I'm still, don't ask me any songs, but I, I do like the songs that I've heard of Susie and the Banshees. But I, I was never a real goth girl. So, Luna, you know, Luna is different from me. We are not the same. And, and our musical tastes are a little bit different. And so that just came up based on what I thought a girl like Luna would like. Yeah, well, that's interesting because you you made a choice off of really. I'm assuming we're about the same age, so I have to believe you and I both came up through MTV. So you yeah, chose yeah. off the visual more than you did off the music. Well, I'm 52, and yes, I grew up with MTV, but I'm also a throwback. My my brother Greg is 14 years older than I. My sister Martha is 12 years older, and then my brother Steve is 10 years older. So 
I, I didn't spend a whole lot of time listening to 80s music when I was a teenager in the 80s. I was listening to Led Zeppelin and Bob Dylan and the Beatles. And, and I remember when I was uh, 12 or 13, I had Buddy Holly albums. And I was just listening to other stuff at the time. I'm coming to it now, but it wasn't a part of... It was playing in the, the background when I was actually in the 80s. I wasn't really paying that much attention to it then. Huh. See, I, I loved, I, it's, I lived by the billboard charts. I just needed mm-hmm. to see what was going to be big. it to London because mm-hmm. that's where Jimmy Page is. There's no other decision other than that. The guy could right. be on tour in Asia, but that's where he is. You yeah. write it, and I'm, this is not going to come out as a compliment, but it is. You write it almost as a travel guide because mm-hmm. you simply walk people to these places. I've, I've done the Beatles walk in London. Where you go to mm-hmm. Paul's home and it's it's all within walking distance and you end mm-hmm. up at, at Abbey Road Studios. I'm just gonna throw a few of these out. You tell me what they are and tell the audience as well the idea. What's what's the Tower House? Tower House is, is Jimmy Page's Kensington London home, and he's had that since the early seventies. So I have been outside of it. I've never been in it, but I've been outside of it four times. Because I've I've been to London 2005, 2006, 15, and 18. So if there's security footage, I, I, he probably thinks, oh my God, that stalker <laughs> woman's back. Oh, you're, if you've only been there four times, you're not even in the picture. You haven't well, showed up true. in the documents. Yes, that's true. Good point. Now, which one of these houses, and I, I should have looked this up, so I don't want to sound dumb when I ask this, but I probably will. Which one of these houses is the one that Aleister Crowley owned that Paige then that's, picked up? Yeah, that's Beleskin House. It's outside Inverness, Scotland, and I made it there in 2018. And I don't drive when I'm abroad because mm-hmm. I don't drive well here. So <laughs> I figure I'm going to leave dead people in my wake if I get behind the wheel there. Honestly, so getting, it isn't... Getting to Beleskin House was yeah. a pain in the ass. Yeah, I, I, I can tell you that driving over there i i didn't think i'd do well either however mm-hmm. the the wheels on the other side of the car mm-hmm. it's it's oddly fairly easy to do i'll it, take your word for it i think <laughs> i'm going to be in a taxi or on a bus or a train or a plane when i'm abroad wonderful what's the <laughs> what's the old mill house Old Mill House is in Windsor and that's that's not far from london but jimmy owned that house and it's actually the, the house where John Bonham died. Mm-hmm. Now, you also made a pilgrimage, or at least the book did, so I assume you did. You made a pilgrimage to where Bonham is buried. Yeah. Where is yeah, that? Yeah, I, I did. 
I went there in 2006. It's just outside Kidderminster, which is near Birmingham. And I, I, I've done all these trips solo. For some reason, I've just always felt like, well, the first time I went solo, I was, I was really on my own vision quest to try and heal from my mother's death. And it, something about that trip and, and all of the others just made me kind of proprietary where the UK is concerned. So I haven't gone with anybody else. Um, and so I was at John Bonham's grave alone in 2006 having a very solemn moment and a woman showed up there was nobody else in the cemetery and it turned out it was john bonham's sister deborah no and it was yes and she was amazing she came over and introduced herself and of course i was flabbergasted and we had just a, a lovely conversation talking about our big brothers my my brother steve was a drummer in various rock bands in my hometown when I was growing up. And then, of course, her brother was John Bonham. Now, two totally different levels there. But we wound up not talking about Wild Bonzo, the rock star. We, we talked about her big brother, John, and my big brother, Steve. And she gave me a hug before I left and thanked me for coming. And that's a, a beautiful memory that um, I will always cherish. Oh, that is... No, that that's wonderful. That's the thread... That you find out that's the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what was the yeah. grave like? Is it a huge thing with angels and all that, or is understated? What is it? No, it's it's very much like how it's described in Searching for Jimmy Page. It's a very bucolic churchyard with this English small English parish church that looks very English. And the grave, fans leave stuff at the grave. It's a pretty big stone. Mm-hmm. And, and people leave sim, drum cymbals and drumsticks and sometimes alcohol and flowers and all kinds of stuff there. So people evidently go fairly often. Yeah, I, I've done also the Searching for Robert Johnson tour. And yeah, you're supposed now, to. I would love to do that. It's great fun. Come on down. It's Greenville, Mississippi, is where it really oh, starts. Yeah. And there's a blues, uh, what do you call it, museum there. And it's wow. it's it's all pretty much easily doable. Um, you really out in farm country at a few times because one time I I stopped and asked a guy uh, where I was going. And I didn't even get to my question, and he said, Robert Johnson? I said, yes, <laughs> that way. Yeah. But what you do is you bring your guitar, you play a Johnson song, and then you leave the pick. And I did that three okay. times, because there's three graves. He may be in one of them. He may be in none of them. Right, they're right, not. Yeah. They're not really sure. Time for the second break. Back in a minute to continue speaking with Christy Hallberg, author of Searching for Jimmy Page on Rock School. Now let's get to this. Now I'm I'm going to argue with you on this one. Headley Grange. Okay, Headley Grange. You must have been able to go in because the character got to go in. Have you been inside of Headley Grange? Yes. Yes. I, I tracked down the owner online before I returned to England in 2015 and um, explained to him why I wanted to go. 
the first time I went to England in 2005, it was to try and heal from my mother's death. In 2015, that trip was about trying to heal from my husband's recent death of cancer. And um, so it felt like, and it was, I was going to leave 10 years to the day that I'd made the first trip. So there was a lot of symbolism there for me, and, and I wanted to go to Heavenly Grange, and so I didn't want to be one of those people who does what Luna does and just shows up and climbs over the gate. <laughs> so I, I wrote to him and, and told him my story, and he wrote me back and invited me to come. So That's I did nice. get to go inside. Do tell the audience, if they don't know what it is, do tell the audience what is Headley Grange. Headley Grange is this old manor house about an hour's drive out of London, I think it's near Lip Hook, and bands would rent the place and, and record. I think Genesis was the first to actually rent it and record in it, but it's got this expansive entryway and a stairway, the stairway to heaven, that goes up three stories, and so Led Zeppelin convened there in order to, to write, well, I mean, they'd already started writing the album at Bronyar. A lot of the songs that turned up on Led Zeppelin floor were either started at Bronyar or, or some of them were started at Headley Grange. And not all of the songs on Led Zeppelin floor were, were finished there, but they did record a lot of stuff there. And Jimmy, as the producer, made use of that expansive entryway. He would hang mics over the, the banister and he'd set up, or Bonzo set up his drum kit in that area where you could get that ambient sound. Mm -hmm. So, um, and supposedly Robert wrote most of the lyrics to Stairway to Heaven sitting in front of the fireplace in the parlor, which I got to see. So it's, it's just kind of this Led Zeppelin mecca. Well, I want to ask you if you believe, indeed, I get it, it's an expansive stairway, but that sounds to me like a Headley Grange made-up story. That that's the stairway to heaven. It's it's too great a metaphorical line mm. to have been a physical set of steps. Do you, do you believe that? Do I believe it's the actual stairway to heaven? Yes. I'd have to believe in heaven first before I could believe that. Ah, oh, there you go. Well, that kills that little bit of the conversation <laughs> right there. Yeah. Um, the thing about Bonham's drums, and I, I, I teach audio classes, is that he didn't have every drum mic'd. He used what's known as a Glenn Johns method. The, the gentleman's name was Glenn Johns. Yeah. And the selling point was that you didn't mic the drums specifically, you mic'd the space. And oh, inside wow. okay. of Headley Grange, you would have so much more of a space. So much like the 50s doo-wop groups that would sing their songs in a subway bathroom because the reverb was so amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's the way they would get these Moby Dick level drums because of the size and what they would do is have microphones that recorded the room and the farther you move the microphone away the more reverb and and room and the closer you got it so when you hear these bands that have these drums that are so pristine and perfect they're miking every drum and i'm sure yeah. they're using these different things to make them bigger but it, it, I mean, the original Beatles songs were simply recorded with a single microphone over top of the kit. 
Yeah. And John Bonham, this Glenn Johns guy, turned his drum kit, which wasn't monstrous. He wasn't, you know, Keith Moon. And the <laughs> the kit was just, you miked the space so it sounded like, instead of a drum itself, it was a full kit in a space. Uh-huh. And it's hard to get across until you played, like I played for my students, John Bonham's drums and the drums from the group Boston. And okay, you can, wow. you can really hear, do that. Play play a Boston song and then okay. play Four Sticks or Moby Dick and yeah. you're going to go, "Oh, I hear it." Well, look, I I adored the book, and again, like oh, I said at the you. beginning, thank you very much. I I don't I I don't much care for fiction. I need my reading to do something. But we've been talking with Christy Hallberg. This is the book "Searching for Jimmy Page." Uh, look, it's only about three hundred pages. In fact, it's a little less than three hundred pages. It's a very quick read. However, it's dense, and it says the F word a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and it has some it has some really uncomfortable situations early on that I think just about any human being who's lived through teen years can look back and go, yeah, I did that. I should mm. not have done that, but I did that. It's well written, and I appreciate you sending it to me, uh, and I hope people do go read it because the ending, which I still don't want to give away, I think is so rooted in truth that... It was, but I didn't expect it. Christy, good luck with the online classes and thanks for speaking with me. Well, thank you so much for reading the book and for having me on the show. I'm a big fan. Oh, great. By the way, I love the purple hair. Oh, I had purple hair for a while. Yeah, I did. What is it now? Fitting for a rock and roll novelist. (laughs) My wife has pure white hair. She went. Okay. She started going white at 14, and I have said to her a thousand times, "Come on, just put some pink in it, put some blue in." And she, <laughs> she just won't do it. Christy, thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.